morning, everyone. So nice to see all your faces out here. Um, I want to say thank you for coming and thanks to Gail and Roshi. I don't know where she is, somewhere in Bali or in the air or I don't know. Be back tomorrow. Um, you may think that you just came here to listen to my talk, um, that you've come to check out the Zen Center, that uh, you, this is what you do on Sunday mornings, that uh, you couldn't think of anything else to do, <laughs> or maybe some of you came to support me. Thank you very much. <coughs> Um, you might be having thoughts about this place right now, or me, or other things that are happening in your life outside of this temple, all the things that minds do. Uh, but I would like to say that we are all uh, inextricably joined right in this moment in this very here and now, that every one of you and me have brought every experience, our DNA, our karma, our ancestors, to this moment right now, and that we are joined, you and me, that uh, I would not be here if you all weren't here, and you would not be here at this moment if I weren't sitting up here. So for me, this moment becomes very rich and precious and really spacious to think of it that way. And I have grown into this awareness because of my Zen practice. And uh, practicing Zen has given me so many gifts, some I can list and some are beyond my realization. Um, I have a, a list, I kind of keep a mental list of the things that I've gotten from practicing and every once in a while something will happen and I say, I must have gotten that from practicing Zen. Um, so maybe you have a list too. It really doesn't matter if you do. Maybe you'd like to make some kind of list. I think it's interesting and can be helpful. But I made a, a short list of some things that matter to me. And I'd like to share this with you about Buddhism. And uh, the first is that Buddhism is very inclusive. No one is an object of condemnation in Buddhism. Um, we are taught to handle our mistakes and our shortcomings and those of the others around us with care and gentleness. These are opportunities for us um, for understanding and compassion. And Buddhism does not focus on punishment. I can't think of any stories about people being punished, but rather about liberation and freedom from our suffering. So in Buddhism, no matter what your beliefs are, no matter where else you practice some sort of spiritual path, you're welcome here to add what we have um, from Buddhism to whatever your path is. And we don't 
ask you to choose or make some sort of loyal declaration to Zen. The second thing is we're a culture of care. We have developed many practices um, to help us learn to be have more loving kindness, more compassion, to be joyful for other people's successes, and to find a, a balance and harmony in our own lives. No one, no matter how despicable your behavior, what you look like, what you believe, um, no one is excluded from our wishes for your good fortune and for your happiness. And everyone is part of our attempt to compassionately understand your life and your suffering. We're taught that everything is Buddha nature, that all the things in this entire universe contain natural goodness. And we are all capable of awakening to the Buddhas that we already are. And we practice Buddhism to, at least I do, to live this human life fully. Um, and not to turn away from or avoid what comes to us, our happiness, even our happiness, our joy, our pain, our sorrows. Um, Everything is part of this very interesting, sometimes wonderful, sometimes difficult experience of being alive. And this consciousness that is available to us as humans in Buddhism is considered winning the lottery. And also, there's such an important focus on our community, on our Sangha. Uh, how we relate to each other, how we depend on each other, help each other, care for each other, work together, and how we work through our conflicts. Um, psychologists and social scientists tell us that relationships, the act of connecting, keeps us closer and more bonded and makes us happier and live longer. But I think in practice that when you focus on Sangha and when you practice here with this Sangha, that it becomes something more, something deeper, something richer and broader. And I vow in my practice to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings and to the offer the merit of whatever I gain for the welfare of all sentient beings. Our purpose becomes to end suffering so that all beings can live in freedom. Um, I have to add this. Black is my favorite fashion color. <laughs> it worked out really well. <laughs> but also very important is to listen to everything I say and with open-mindedness open and flexibility and not to hang on to any of it very tightly. For me, this is really a magnificent way to live, a life of purpose and caring, never-ending learning, and a path to happiness and less suffering for everyone. And another important thing is that Buddhism attempts to define and describe this very reality. Um, 
one of the ways of understanding this phenomenal world is to understand what is called the two realities, relative and ultimate, conventional and unconventional. And so I'd like to talk about that a little bit today. So relative truth or conventional reality is the world that I am most familiar with. It's the reality I think I'm living in most of the time. Um, that's the reality that we name everything that we think is we're all separate and, and, and finite and solid. So um, we identify things by names, we impute meaning, we, we call things and name things different things. Galen Roshi calls this how we decorate our lives. So I could say, I'm a cis woman, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, I'm a social worker, I'm a Zen practitioner, I'm a friend, um, I'm critical, I'm kind, I'm judgmental, I'm, you know, all those things, you get the idea. So in rea relative reality, I'm somebody. And in that way, you all are too. Um, we're all full of definitions. And so are trees and mountains, furniture, racism, justice, hot, cold, awful. So relative or conventional reality is how things appear to us. While the ultimate or absolute truth is inexpressible, empty, empty of separateness, and lies outside of conventional experience and language. The ultimate is devoid of all the imputations. And as Buddha says to the Bodhisattva Dharmagata, in speaking of the ultimate, no augmentation applies to it. No reasoning reaches it. No deliberation touches it. It lacks production and it lacks cessation. Absolute truth is the reality beyond dualism of any kind. But it, it's also the true nature of relative reality that I just described. In Mahayana Buddhism, it is called emptiness or boundlessness. Thich Nhat Hanh uses the term interbeing. Um, and it's also called, uh, uh, referred to as space and complete openness. So the absolute or ultimate is the inherent nature of everything, how things really are. The conventional or, or relative is how things appear. But both realities are intertwining all of the time reflecting, turning, all the time. So Ruth King, who is an important Zen teacher and social activist, gave a really good talk on this topic and inspired me in so many ways. And one of the things she did was she collected a few quotes about the absolute and the, or the, absolute and the relative. And here are a couple of them. T.S. Eliot said, the external or ultimate is outside of time, yet it is only in time that the fruit of spiritual 
liberation can manifest. Rumi said, live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. (laughs) And uh, Martin Luther King said, you must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. So we also, lots of us misunderstand the two truths, easy to do. And I want to talk about a couple of those misunderstandings. So one is that uh, people create a true false reality and think that the absolute is the true reality and the, and the relative truth is false reality. So if I'm um, looking at those beautiful flowers in the entryway that Sally did, I'm thinking this isn't really real. This is not ultimate. But in fact, that's not accurate at all. Both things are occurring simultaneously. And in fact, as I said, those beautiful flowers, that beautiful arrangement is just an expression of the ultimate. Um, And there's also this idea that there's a hierarchy, that relative is kind of lower based and ultimate is kind of higher based. And um, if you're really an advanced Zen student, you'd be living in the ultimate all the time. just visit occasionally, like for holidays, you know. (laughs) But um, these are the two truths and not the one truth and the one lie. Um, Both truths are true and they're the same. They're two sides of the same coin. And they're around us all the time. It's like um, looking at a handshake or a beautiful couple dancing. You don't see the separateness when the hands come together. They look like one hand, but you know they're two hands. Just like if you watch a beautiful couple dancing, they look like they're one unit moving across the floor, even though you know they are two different people. So um, they're not dualistic. And it's more accurate to say that it's one truth manifested in different ways. So I asked Dale Roshi once, how much time do you think Tenshin Roshi spends in the absolute, in the ultimate? And she said, without hesitation, the same amount as you and me all the time. (laughs) Um, So we really need the relative to operate in this world. How else would we express things to each other or be able to identify things or learn about our spiritual path? We really need the relative and we need to be reminded of the ultimate at the same time. But sometimes um, we need the relative to expand ourselves. So, If you've seen a beautiful painting or heard a magnificent poem or listened to some gorgeous music or look into the eyes of someone you deeply love, there's this experience that can move you beyond all of that, where everything changes and you're somewhere else. And maybe that's a way, maybe that's a way that we're touching the ultimate that the relative took us to the ultimate. 
because the ultimate is spacious and inexpressible. And it's outside of the concept of time. And, but there's more to it. So Pema Chodron uh, imagines that we're having this dialogue with the Buddha, and here's how it goes. The Buddha says, how do you imagine reality? And we say, well, I imagine everything is separate from me and solid. And he says, no, go deeper. So we go away and we think about it for a while. And we think we've got it. So we come back and we say, we know. Everything is not solid. Everything is empty. Mm, no, he says, go deeper. So then we go away and we think about it again. And we return with the answer. <coughs> Everything is both empty and not empty simultaneously. This is this turning of relative and ultimate. And the Buddha says, hmm, that sounds pretty good. Go deeper. <laughs> <laughs> and then we come back and we say, there's only one possible answer. The nature of reality is that it neither exists nor doesn't exist. It's neither form nor emptiness. Now, that's a really cool Zen answer. <laughs> so we're feeling really good. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Buddha says, mm, that's, that's really too limited of an understanding. Yikes, what are we going to do with all that? So there's only one left thing to do, and that is to abide in non-abiding. The truth of groundlessness. Nothing to cling to, no attainment, no ultimate answer, no definitive place to land, just the wide, open, spacious, unlimited being. So besides it's really cool and intellectually stimulating to think about reality in those ways, what is the point and how is it useful to us? Um, what does it do to know how things really are? Um, the, I'll tell you a few of my ideas and you might have some really good ideas. That's another cool thing about Zen. Everybody gets to have their own ideas and to decide their own answers to things. So here are a couple of my ideas. First of all, it opens us up to this great awareness of the intricate, never-ending world of complex interconnections. It's awesome in the truest sense of the word. It frees us from our limited, habitual thinking. Um, here's a quote from Albert Einstein that I found. A human being is a part of the whole called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. He, she experiences him herself, her, his, her thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest of us a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us. 
restricting us to our personal desires and our affection for few persons nearest to us. Our task is to free ourselves from this prison by widening the circle of understanding and compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. And I would add to the whole of reality and beyond. So by the way, researchers are actually studying the, effect, the effects of awe on humans. And they're coming up with some really interesting um, results. And they're defining awe as perceived vastness and a need for accommodation. Sounds kind of familiar. So when it comes to the psychological effects, when people experience awe, they uh, have a diminished sense of self. I think that means ego. Um, they give people uh, the sense that they have more available time, increased feelings of connectedness, increased critical thinking and skepticism, and increased positive mood and decreased materialism. And it helps people feel kinder and more compassionate just by experiencing all. So for me, this understanding of the ultimate opens us to the undefined sense of belonging. We really aren't alone, no matter how you look at it. And then we don't, then we start practicing not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Our practice belongs to the world because we're all in this together, part of the same thing, the same universe, the same reality. Uh, this understanding takes us to intimate relationships with all beings. And when we, when we aspire to embody practice, we are embodying all of it, the relative and the ultimate. So I'm offering you this opportunity. The next time you look in a mirror, um, remember that you're so much more than you can perceive in the mirror. You are part of this vast consciousness and reality. And our problems and shortcomings that feel so insurmountable are literally relative issues momentary and limited. And I don't mean to minimize them because they feel really real and they are really real, but maybe we could soften the impact and realize their emptiness and impermanence. So I think if you understand the <clears throat> opening of the relative and the conventional, uh, the relative the conventional or the unconventional, it's a message to relax. I mean, it's all happening in more ways than we can know or definitely control. So resting in non-abiding non takes us to fearlessness because the vastness of the way things are, there's no fear there. And in this wonderful universe, uh, we can trust that it's all going to be okay in some form or another. And at the same time, knowing that we are so interconnected um, and being a part of everything calls us to action, to take good care of each other and, and everything 
Um, for me, continuing to practice has brought me to understand that I must responsibly play a role because everything's critical no matter what I do. It's contributing to this big picture. So we're constantly being called upon to respond um, to the smaller and larger picture. When we see our friends struggle, when we see injustice, when we just want to love someone. Sometimes it's easy to know what to do and sometimes it's difficult. And the right thing doesn't always feel so good. We can remember that we are a culture of care for ourselves and the whole universe. And we're making choices all the time in every, every moment. Do we reach out or do we pull back and pass? Um, what's the best, most compassionate way to respond? Can we remember that we are just planting seeds? We are planting seeds because we make waves. So that's just an example of how we remember our practice. In the smallest words and in our awareness of the ultimate reality. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm.